Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Hey, Columbia, it's so great to see you. And for those of you in the house, give yourselves a hand for making it on Time Change Day. Okay, you did it. Was it tough? Because I got to be honest and say it was a little tough for me. I will tell you, though, Chris, I think I'm right about this today. Usually maybe the rock and roll service is a little more lively. Not so much today. I think this crowd, I think they had them, don't you? Now, maybe you just got an extra hour and a little bit to wake up, I think. But you guys uh, were alive today in worship. Thank you for being here. And for those who uh, are online, it's great to have you too. It's a special day in a lot of ways. I hope you'll join us for a business session after this service in which, among other things, we'll be honoring uh, two retirees from our staff. And one of them I want to particularly note is in the worship service today, He's sitting right down here with Debbie. And that's Pat Larco. And this is his wife, Blanca. Pat and Blanca, stand up right here. Come on, turn around. Let everybody see you. And... Um, Let me tell you about Pat. Pat is our maintenance engineer, uh, and Pat uh, has just completed 35 years on this staff team, which is truly, truly amazing. And he has uh, been so valuable to us. He's such a great guy, and we're really going to miss him but we wish him a great retirement. And thank you, Pat, for being here today. Pat hates worse than anything being pointed out in a crowd. Am I right, Pat? And so I had to, I had to get people to twist his arm. We're not going to give him his last paycheck unless he showed up uh, today. So thank you for being here. We'll see you in the business session in a little while. We're proud of you and grateful for you. So we're talking about Real ID, and, uh, and I think you're really going to get into this as we go, because I believe you're going to see some connections, even within a small fragment of Scripture, but outside of them too, uh, that are going to make a, a whole lot of sense to you. And that's already been the case. I've been having discussion with a number of you about identity and what identity means and the like. Before I talk about that, let me talk about one thing I could identify myself by. I, I don't. I'm I, probably not quite enough good to do, uh, do that. But it's, it's a sport I play. So a lot of people will identify them, you know, by a sport they play. If they're golfers, they'll say, I'm not a golfer. You know, I, earlier we had a, a visiting uh, uh, college football coach, and that probably would be the first thing he'd talk about is his, his career in, in sports. So it's one of the ways we can identify ourselves. But for me, it's just a pastime. It's a way uh, to lose, uh, lose some pounds, stay in shape, burn some calories, you know, get the heart rate uh, up. But this is something I've been doing for a long, long time. Like I started in my teenage years and I still play this sport. Now I'm going to tell you about this sport because a lot of you probably don't even know about it anymore. It, it, was, a, it was a sport that was very popular with uh, the boomers. And I'm either a very, very, I was born at the end of 64. So I'm either a very, very young boomer or uh, a very, very old exer or something like that. I don't know what I am, but I'm, I'm a tweener as they call. But I yeah, this sport was established by those who were a little older than I so that once upon a time you could play this anywhere. I mean, this was, this was all over the place and it was everywhere. But now you can hardly find a place to play. And that sport is racquetball. So let me see if there are any dinosaurs, <laughs> racquetball players left out there. Anybody here? Because I'm always looking for a new partner. I did not know, Adam, that you played racquetball. Does that mean you used to or you still do? Used to. That doesn't count. I'm talking about your wife is saying he doesn't play racket. I, I, I'm looking for people who still play. So I found one in an earlier service. Tim, maybe he and I can get together and play sometime. My regular racquetball buddy is Steve Burkett. I think I see Steve's family back here on the left. Do I? Is Steve back there? Or is he, to, is he at skating today? Is that right? I think he told me. Anyway, Steve, uh, he plays most, most weeks. We miss some weeks. Once in a while, we'll miss longer than a week. But we try to play at least once a week. And he's a worthy foe. He's a hard competitor. He's a really great athlete. Uh, you know, he played college football, and he's a better athlete than I am. And so usually what I had for a while and experience and, and some skill, he could make up for in just sheer ability and, and grit. So we've always had tough games, but as God and Steve are my witness, 
There was a day where I almost always could beat Steve if I wanted to. In fact, if we played three games, I'd almost always at least win two, sometimes three. And this would go on for a week on into the point that he got frustrated at one point. But then he, you know, he got to where he'd take me once in a while. And everything was rocking along well. I was still playing the game at a pretty high level, uh, pretty well, until I started playing another game. So this particular game is the new rage, and it's because the boomers got older. You guys, you boomers, you got old, and racquetball just became a little too quick and difficult for you, I think. And so, uh, so this game, you know, it's tracked along, and this game has become the It's everywhere. I mean, it has taken the country and really the West by storm. I'm, I'm told it's also very popular in Europe. Now, this particular game is one I said I would not play. I mean, I said I'd never play this game. It was for old people. I just wasn't going to do it. And uh, my wife, Debbie, she said to me, honey, this is something I really want to do. I really want to play this game. I said, okay, uh, then please do. You play. No, I really want you to play with me. And she said, you know, it really helps me. Like, it helps me to cope and deal with a day. I mean, it, it, it really, uh, could you just do this for me? Now, what do you do when your wife says something like that? Chris, what do you do? You, you do it because, you know, you, because you love her. And so I said, all right, I, I'm going to give it a try. And so she started before I did. She taught me the rules and like, we get out there and we start playing. And here's, here's what happened to me. This game's so much fun. This game is so much fun. And the game I'm talking about, of course, is? Pickleball. All right. How about pickleball players? Anybody out there? Okay. Here's the, I'm, you guys, that was true in the last service. You guys, you sit on the sofa too much. You need to get up and move. I'm just going to tell you that if you don't play this game yet, you're going to. And if you don't want to, don't try it because it is addictive. It is a ton of fun. I mean, so much fun that we try to play several times a week. It is a, it's a really great sport. It turns out it's really easy to, to learn this, to enter but it's hard to get good at. So it's, it's kind of a good combination. It's also a game that you can get out there with people like Debbie and I have played doubles with people who are much older than we. They dogged us. I mean, this is their retirement career. They play every single day. They're re, you can get really good at any age. But let me tell you something about this sport. It is very different than racquetball sport. Both are played with an instrument used to hit the ball, one called a racket, the other a paddle, that's about the same size. And the similarity kind of ends there. I mean, it doesn't carry much farther than that. So the difference between hitting with a stringed racket, a webbed racket, a pressurized rubber ball that moves around a court with four walls and a ceiling and a floor at rapid speeds is so very different than hitting a wiffle ball with a board. It's totally different. The ball, the speed of the ball, the bounce of the ball, the feel of the game is completely different. So racquetball gave me a big advantage in learning pickleball. But this is what happened to me. It ruined my racquetball game. I'm not kidding. Uh, to the point that we've played for the last several weeks, and after a couple of weeks, Steve said to me, dude, who are you? Hey, he will tell he, who are you? What is the matter with you? You can't serve. You can't hit the ball. I said, it's pickleball. He said, well, you got to quit pickleball. This is what he said. I said, you call Debbie tonight. You tell her that because of the one game, if we get it in a week that I play with you, that I'm going to quit pickleball. See how that goes for you. Okay, you try it. But the other thing I said to him is I said, I have a friend who has an expression. I like this expression. My friend says, the game that you love, but don't play all that often is not as good as the game you really like, but play all the time. Is that true? And that, that makes sense to me. So I said to my buddy, Steve, I'm just going to have to learn to adapt from one game to the next. Because here's the bad news, is if I play racquetball, so Steve and I played on Friday afternoon, he destroyed me. I was terrible. On Friday afternoon, we played racquetball after I'd played pickleball previously in the week twice. We played racquetball on Friday. Last night, I got back on the pickleball court. What happened? I couldn't serve the ball. It took me two games to get used to it. That game ruins the other one. So I'm just going to have to learn to adapt. But it has taught me a lesson. And that is, if I want to get as good as you at something, 
If there is something that you're really gifted at, you're really great at, if there's something you're awesome at, I don't have to get you to quit doing that thing. I don't have to get you to deny that thing. I just have to get you to regularly play a different game. Does that make sense? All I have to do is get you off your game. I have to mess up your swing, mess up your serve. I have to somehow get you off your game change the game. There's an old expression that we consultants use that goes like this. If, if you can't win the game, change the field. And this is changing the field. Now listen, that, that's a great expression, but in reality, in time, if I keep doing it, I will learn to adapt from one game to another. But in the broader significance of life, I think you'll understand why I'm teaching this today. Because this is precisely what the devil did to Jesus. He tried to get him to change the field. He tried to get him to change the game. If I can just supplant your real ID with a fraudulent identity, all I have to get you to do is to flirt with the other identity. I don't have to ask you to deny it. I don't have to ask you to do anything. All I have to do is just get you off your game. And what I want to tell you, and this is, we could quit after this, but we're not going to, is that this is how temptation works. This is how smart the devil is. And this is how insecure sometimes that we are. And these little tiny weaknesses can be exploited just to get us off our game. Now, let's remember the premise of this sermon in case case you're visiting for the first time. You weren't here last week. You didn't watch this on TV or something. Last week, I taught you about real ID. Now, you know, that was fun. You get a real ID, all that, but... I told you that your real ID is given to you by the one true living God. I taught you, and I think most of you agreed with me. I've had a lot of conversation this week about this. Really intriguing, fascinating conversation about this with some of you. That in his baptism, Jesus was publicly marked with his real ID. Now to see if those of you here or watching were paying attention, what is Jesus' real ID? Tell me before I throw it up. There you go. He's the beloved son of the heavenly father. That is the ID with which the heavenly father marked him in the baptism. That was the purpose, in my opinion, the main purpose of the baptism. Of course, Jesus is recapitulating the walk of the Hebrew children into the wilderness for 40 days, day for 40 years. He comes through the water just as they came through the Red Sea. And so also there are lots of things happening theologically here. It's not just that Jesus was modeling the way. That's an inadequate answer that Baptists too often give. But there is something amazing that was happening there. The biggest thing that was happening, in my opinion, is that Jesus was publicly marked with this ID as the beloved son of the Father. Now, I suggested to you, I did more than suggest, I said it. In your baptism... And I got good, good backup here. It's in the Bible. That really helps. I, you know, Paul says this. In your baptism, you are publicly marked with your real ID, your real identity. Now, let me pause and chase a rabbit for a second because a couple of people struggled with the importance of baptism to what I said. Because, of course, we know that baptism does not save us. Amen? We know that baptism is a symbol of what saves us, which is our claiming Jesus' death and resurrection as our own. It is the death of our old selves and the resurrection of a new. But I'm telling you, if you have struggles with me saying that baptism is the critical mark of this, you simply have not bothered to read the New Testament. Because it is very clear, Paul talks about it over and over again, he's not the only one, to say you are baptized into Christ. Baptism is the 2,000-year age-old expression of what Jesus sacramentally did. It in itself is not a sacrament, but it is a claim by the priests of the high priest who is Jesus, and it is uber-important. It is very important, and we need not ever to discount its importance. In your baptism, you are publicly marked with your real ID in Christ. And just to make sure you were listening, tell me, my friends, what is your real ID? Just say, I am a, I'm a beloved child of God. 
You are a beloved child of the Heavenly Father. I, it, it, just You can insert this because I think it's more powerful for me to say I'm a beloved son of the Heavenly Father. And if you are a, a woman to say I'm a beloved daughter of the Heavenly Father. Also, a couple of people struggled with this a little bit. I, I mean, they didn't say it was unbiblical in any way. They understood it. They just, they just were honest with me. I said, you know, this intimate connection thing with a father is tough for me. Now, why would that be true for some people? What do you think? Well, if your earthly father didn't model this so well, this can be a struggle. This can be tough. I know people who actually stay away from this analogy of identity. They do it because they struggle with it, but But this is also really biblical. And what you need to understand here is that this is the cure for the disease. That is, no matter how perfect or imperfect your earthly father was or is, whether he represented this well or represents this well or not, your real father for eternity is creator God. That steward of yours called your dad on earth or your father on earth only walks with you for a very brief time. He is supposed to model for you what your heavenly father looks like. A mother is supposed to model for you what your heavenly father looks like. Yes, that's in the Bible, that God nurses us at his bosom. That's feminine, not masculine. Our parents are supposed to be the image of God for us. But in reality... None of us who are parents do that exactly right. Amen? All of us fail. It's helpful to say to your child, I just said to one of my daughters this week, hey, I'm sorry for all the times I messed it up. I think I got it right a lot, but I got it wrong a lot, and I still get it wrong a lot. It's a tough job. You don't find out it's really tough until you do it. Am I right about this? You ever, have you said to your kids yet, when you are a parent, have you done that yet? Have you done it? You know you have. And did you have this happen? Did you become a parent and say to your mom and your dad, just want you to know, I never knew it was this tough. It's a hard job. But at the end of the day, your heavenly father is the one true living God, the creator who made you to be his son or his daughter. And so there is no other identity than your real ID in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean other things aren't important. Uh, Please understand There is no other real ID except I am a daughter or I am a son of the one true living God, of the heavenly Father. And that's what we learn, among other things, in this part of Matthew. Now, why might Matthew give us a good lens for identity? In fact, let me go as far as to say, why might Matthew be thinking very carefully about identity as he writes his gospel? Because remember, who is Matthew writing to? Each of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a little different. Mark's generally considered to be writing to the Gentiles. Matthew is considered, biblical scholars, to be writing to who? The Hebrews, the Jews. And these first believers in Jesus, those first ones, those completed Jews, the ones who said, this is the Messiah, this Jesus is the Messiah, and then went a step further and says, no, it's more than that. This is the very Son of God incarnate. Those first Jews ushered in for themselves in following Jesus a radical identity crisis. It didn't become a huge issue for them until they got kicked out of the synagogues. But once the Jews said to them, you're no longer welcome here if you claim the name of Jesus, all of a sudden there's an identity issue. This is what I've been all my life. And now all of a sudden, I am not only choosing to be something else, but in addition to being choosing, I am forced to be something else. That gets into all my insecurities about belonging. And remember, I taught you last week that identity is all about belonging, wanting, needing, hoping to belong. So Matthew's writing to a group of people who are struggling with identity. What does it mean? Who am I? What am I really? Who does the I am say that I am. And he uses Jesus' early ministry to teach us about that. So after the baptism, I asked you last week, and a lot of you didn't get it, what happens after that? And the answer is Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, 
or you open an app or whatever it is you do. I, this is funny. Somebody said last week, I said this, and somebody in the balcony, I think it was in the balcony, they had a talking Bible on their, on their thing. Did you hear it? I didn't know what it was. I thought somebody was convulsing up there or something. So they opened this thing, and it starts reading the Scripture aloud, and they couldn't figure out how to turn it off. So make sure you got your silence on if you do this. But open your app or whatever you do to Matthew chapter 4 and take a look at this Scripture. Now, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. What a sentence. What a loaded sentence. Okay, then Jesus was led by the Spirit of God, meaning this is the Father's will. The Father is dictating that this is to happen. He is speaking to His Son through the help of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is communicating. And as the Trinity is communicating, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just saw that in the baptism, didn't we? And Jesus honors the will of the Father, and he is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's all kind of crazy going on here. Am I right? Look at this again. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So first of all, let's talk about this whole wilderness thing. Now, I can theologize this, of course. Jesus is going to spend 40 days and 40 nights fasting from food and water in the wilderness. In doing so, he's going to recapitulate the 40-year wandering of the Hebrew people. He only needs 40 days because he already knows who he is. It took them 40 years wandering through the dust to figure out who they were. That was the purpose of the wilderness wandering, to figure out they were children of God, to, to be reminded of that again. You're not slaves. You are free children of God. It took them that long. Jesus already knows, but he's got to recapitulate it. And so we, we know why he goes into the wilderness, but it's just not a smart thing to do. Okay, so a new president gets elected. Gerhard, you love this stuff. New president gets elected. This is not somebody who has been in office for four years and is repeating his first four years. You got four years and only four years, and the most important period of that four years is said to be the first hundred days. I'll take 90 days if you like it, but it's first, first hundred days. There's all kinds of history written about presidents' first hundred days in office. All kinds. So Jesus is ushering in a campaign that's bigger than a presidential campaign, and it's shorter than a presidential campaign, three years instead of four. He's ushering in this campaign to save the world from its fall away from God to redeem the world by His grace. He is walking toward the cross and the empty tomb, and as he begins this campaign, he's only got this brief period of time. And let's say that the first hundred days is really important. He's been publicly marked with his ID, his real ID, as the son of the heavenly father in whom he's well pleased. Now everybody knows it. And now what is the most important thing he do? Get out in the crowd and campaign. Campaign, man. Get into the public. Kiss some babies. Hold some hands. Eat some hamburgers. That's what you do. What, what does Jesus do? He's got 100 days for this first 100 days, and he wastes 40% of it by himself in the wilderness. That's insane. You can't win this way. There's no way. You get beat if you do this. There's no possible way you win. So it's not strategic for him, but it is strategic for the Father. The Father dictating this, the grand scheme of it all, the grand campaign of it all, the grand design of it all is for Jesus to spend his first 40 days in office being what? Tempted by the devil. You guys got teenagers? Ever had them? Would you, would you please agree with me that we try to keep our kids out of places where they'll be tempted? Do you, you don't agree with this? You're going to learn, Chris. All right, so 
You worry about these friends of theirs, right? It's not you, it's your friends. That's what we do, we, we reverse it. We say, I'm not worried about you, I'm worried about your friends. And then they say, well, my friends do this. And I say, I don't care about your friends, I care about you. So anyway, that's, that's how we do. So, so, so we, we try to keep them out of places where they'll be sorely tempted. And the father sends the son into a place and a condition in which he will be sorely tempted, which tells me a couple of things, among other things, that this is absolutely essential to establishing Jesus' real ID, number one. And number two, that temptation is a gift from God to prove identity. Listen again. Temptation, allowing it, not causing it is a gift from God to give us a chance to prove identity. It's like doing really well in a course and getting to the exam. You know, you walk into the exam you're really worried about, but you walk into the one at some point where you go, I can't wait to show what I know about this. I can't wait. I, I try to feel that way on Sundays. I try to be so well prepared that I can't wait to share with you what God has given. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, let me put these temptations into three buckets because there are three temptations, each one a little louder and a little worse than the first. So, the first one is sort of mild in nature. The second one's a little more severe. And the third one, which Chris is going to deal with, is the most severe. In the third one, Satan just is going to come right out and try to ask Jesus to give away his identity. But in the first two, he's going to tempt him to compromise his identity a little more the second time than the first. And those three buckets that these temptations fit into, which is to say that these temptations represent more temptations than just what's happening here. And I'm going to call the first one pleasure. The first bucket of temptations is pleasure. A ton fits in there, right? Am I right with this? A lot of pleasure, a lot of temptation, a lot fits in there. The second bucket is prominence or popularity. And the third temptation or the third bucket is the one Chris is going to deal with is power. So these are the three temptations. And yes, I chose three Ps because I always do that, right? So you'll remember them. That's why. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the author of Hebrews tell us, we do not have a high priest. Remember, Jesus is our high priest, and we are priests under the high priest. We are mediators under the great mediator. We mediate the presence of Christ to the world, and Christ mediates the presence of God to us. That's the picture that's painted in the New Testament. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He understands them even though he did not have them. But we have one who has been tempted, read the next two words with me, in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. This is a profound scripture. And absolutely true, of course. Now, I don't think that most people buy this. Another couple of people really struggled once again with my saying once again, as I've said a thousand times before, Jesus is not the superhuman and we're the humans. Jesus is the true human. Paul calls him the last Adam. The Scripture says He lived life in every way as we should have, as we were created to. Jesus is the true human, and we are the subhumans. We are the fallen ones. We have fallen away from God's design for humanity. In truth, the truest form of Christianity would, if it were honest, be humanism. Because humanism would actually be to celebrate humanity as God created it to be. Amen? It would be to say we're trying to be, when we're loving, we're truly human. When we do not fall to temptation and we do not sin, we are truly human. When we have faith, we are truly human. When our hearts are connected to God's heart, we're truly human. When we use everything that God created in the way he designed it to be created, we're truly human. We're at our best when we are human like Jesus. So to try to be like Jesus is try to recover humanity as God created it to be. But even if we were everything Jesus is, we'd still be tempted in every last way that we already are. 
People don't understand this. They struggle with it. They see Jesus as having these minor temptations like, oh yeah, well he might have been tempted to curse once in a while or something like that. But, but sexual temptation? No, he, he was never tempted. To, he was never tempted by sexual desire. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are. There's no temptation that we know that Jesus did not as a human walking on earth, not anything. So we know that it is possible for us to deal with temptation in the way that he did. So let's continue and look at the precondition for this temptation. Now, this is where I want you to think for a moment, okay? Every temptation has a precondition. This is like before you're diabetic, you're pre-diabetic. Lose a few pounds. Before you're something, you're pre-that. So the pre-thing is the warning about what is to come. And in this case, the precondition is your own neediness. Now let me make something clear to you. Every last one of you is needy. I know that you like to label other people this way. You don't think of yourself this way. You say, that person is really needy. Usually it's referred to, a woman is referred to in this way often in our culture, which is sexist, frankly. But that's how it's used very often. You're all needy, so just to get... Make sure you get the point. Turn to your neighbor and say to them, you are really needy. Just say it. You're really needy. Okay. Well, let's, let's, that's not good. That's not good. We need to do this confessionally. I'm sorry. Turn to them and say, I'm really needy. Just say, I'm really needy. And then the person who just heard it, you might want to say to them, don't I know it? You know? Don't I know? We're all really needy. We are, we are just walking talking, breathing needs in the world, and we're constantly struggling with how these needs are to be met. Let me hasten to say this too. There is nothing inherently wrong with need. God created us with need of all varieties. There's nothing inherently wrong with need, and there's nothing inherently wrong with meeting that need in the ways that God has designed for those needs to be met. And let me say thirdly, there's nothing wrong with having a need that doesn't get met. It is okay, in fact vital, that we have needs that do not have to be met for us to find joy, for us to be who God has called us to be. But look at Jesus' precondition. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, now this next expression to me is hilarious. He was what? Hungry. Oh, thanks for telling me, Matthew. (laughs) You ever fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? No? You haven't? Really? I haven't either. I mean, that's a hunger hunger strike. But let me say something really quickly. 40 days and 40 nights coincides very nicely. That must be an accident in this sermon series. Coincides really nicely with Lent and the 40-day build-up to Easter, and fasting and praying is something you might want to experiment with. If it's good enough for JC, it's good enough for me. Give it a try. But don't do it for 40 days and 40 nights, and do drink water, because you, you ain't Jesus, though you're trying to be like him. But Matthew, for some reason, wants to make sure we know he was hungry, and that means something. He doesn't just say he's 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and then you come, oh, he must have been hungry, thirsty. He tells us he was hungry. Why? Because the hunger is the precondition to the temptation. Let me me tell you, in case you don't know, that the devil is very crafty. And the devil knows your preconditions. Let's call them needs, just for fun. But they're preconditions. He knows the places in your life where there are chinks in your armor. He knows when you feel lonely and desire human connection. He knows when you feel abandoned and you desperately want to belong. He knows when you are insecure. He knows these places, and frankly, you ought to know them too. So part of your whole life discipleship is about identifying the preconditions before the temptations come. Because what happens is if we become reactors like like pinballs in a machine or like racquetballs on a court, we're just reacting to what just happened. We're never going to win this battle. The battle of temptation has to be won before the temptation. Amen? The battle has to be won before it happens. So what has to happen is I've got to identify, I've got this deep insecurity, this deep need. It's 
bashing itself around inside my head. It is begging to be satiated. That's going to be where Satan's going to hit me. You'll be right. You'll be right 90% of the time, if not more. The precondition here is hunger. Of course Jesus is hungry. And he wants, he desires to slake that hunger. He desires to satisfy that hunger. He desperately wants a Snickers. He does. He has desire. And somebody's going to hit me on this and say, desire and pleasure are not the same thing. Think it through. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Pleasure always comes from the meeting of a need or a desire. So in this particular instance, what Jesus wants is to be pleased. Now what happens next? The tempter comes to him, and he says, If you are the Son of God. That's how he says it too, by the way. He doesn't holler at Jesus. The devil doesn't do that. And by the way, the devil knows who Jesus is just like he knows who you are. There is no reason to tempt you if you are not close to God. If you are far from God, there's no need to tempt you. You're already tempting yourself plenty. The tempter comes to you to try to get you to choose a fraudulent identity, to pick something other than your identity as a son or daughter of God, to compromise your identity. So the way he does it is by questioning Jesus, introducing a little doubt here, right? If you are the Son of God, and not only that, but this is really cool, he is trying to get Jesus to undermine his own identity by trying to prove his identity. This is like a scammer calling you on the phone and getting you to give them your bank account number and routing ID to prove that the bank account is yours. And the way the scammer is going to prove that you are right is by withdrawing all of your money and stealing your ID. And Satan is the great identity thief. That's what he is. He doesn't just want you to do a bad thing. He wants to rob you of your identity. He doesn't need you even to choose his identity as yours. He just needs to get you to play another game. Uh Uh-huh. He just needs to get you to get off your game. He just needs to ruin your swing and your serve. That's all he needs to do. And that's what he's trying to do here with Jesus. So he says to him, prove it, man. If you are the Son of God. Now, I know you're smart and you don't need this, but just to make sure that you didn't miss it or that you were asleep last week or you're asleep today... Let's look at the connection. Just tell me the truth. Have you missed this before now? Because I had. Look at what Matthew does here. Verse 317, a voice from heaven, God's voice, the Father's voice. This is my Son whom I love. With Him I'm well pleased. The tempter's voice just a few verses later, verse 4-3. If you are the Son of God prove it. Am I the only person in here that has ever gotten themselves into lots of trouble trying to prove themselves? Anyone else? Prove to you that I'm smart. Going to get me in trouble every time. Prove to you I'm in charge. Going to get me in trouble every time. Prove to you that I'm important so I can have whatever I want. Going to get me in trouble every last time. I would dare say that the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my entire life were when I was trying to prove I belonged somewhere that I didn't even need to belong. Right? Teenagers, we call this peer pressure. That's what that is. Peer pressure is when you have a need to belong and a need to prove that you belong, and so you go along with whatever in order to to meet that need. Tempter comes to Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, this is no big deal, friends. Let's face it. Jesus is hungry. 
Does he have the power to change stones to bread? Well, let's check. Let's see. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Uh, he stilled the seas. Uh, walked on water. This is no big deal. This is nothing. This is like, yeah, I think about it and it happens. I, I didn't even have to touch him, I would think, right? He could just, it's no big deal. Not only that, but Jesus is hungry. And so if I had been out there and I could do this, do you think I'd change the stones to bread? If you think the answer is no, you got way more faith in me than I do. Because <laughs> here's what I would do. Here's the justification game. I'd go, well, first of all, God created this need. In fact, I was born with this desire to eat. I was born this way. Now, that's a big problem because we understand theologically that we were born with lots of things that don't define us. We call original sin the fact that we inherit at birth a tendency to desire what is distant from God, away from God's will. So we have to be really careful with saying that somebody's designed this way or born this way, and it must be of God. So I say, well, I'm designed with this need. And not only that, here's the second justification I would give. Look at this neat little pile of rocks. God must have given me these rocks to meet my need. It's like somebody saying, I really desire a new Lamborghini. And look on the lot right there. I just drove over here and it caught my eye. That must be God. Yeah, if you're your own God. You can't just say every time I, something catches my eye, that must be God. You can't baptize all your desires and make them of God. You can't do it. The Bible's really clear on this, but we do it all the time. So Jesus could have justified it. He could have said, first of all, God gave me the capacity to do this. That's one. Secondly, he gave me this deep hunger. And he's the one who made me come out here for 40 days and fast. It's his fault. That's two. And number three, here's a pile of rocks. I can change them to bread. That's three. But Jesus knows a couple of things. First of all, he knows though he has completed the fast, the whole purpose is the temptation. Secondly, he knows that God did not create piles of rocks to be consumed for food. God made provision for hunger, and that's not it. And thirdly, he knows the will of his Father to use his capacity only in ways that reinforce his identity to those who matter and the devil don't matter. He doesn't need to prove who he is to himself or to the devil. Doesn't need to do that. So he resists the temptation. I've been reading a fantastic book. In fact, I've read it almost twice now. Janelle Williams Paris is a Christian anthropologist who's written a book called The End of Sexual Identity. And this book is about way more than sex, way more. It's about everything I'm talking about today, but it definitely is about desire and pleasure and sex. And in one little snippet of that book, she says, a pervasive biblical theme is that human desire is fickle, a mystery even to ourselves. She goes on to say, we cannot allow ourselves to be defined by our feelings and needs. Rather, we define our feelings and needs based on who we are. This is a fantastic book. It's not only, by the way, about the way we identify ourselves. It's about being careful about identifying others by one characteristic or one thing about them or whatever, and seeing everyone as a potential daughter or son of the Heavenly Father. I recommend this book to you. That's why I put up the quote. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, what Jesus knows is that that little trip over the rocks, the pile of rocks, could turn into a great fall. Before long, he's Humpty Dumpty. Just one little trip doesn't feel like a big deal. But if you compromise your identity, the game's over. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. I mean, these things are everywhere. And God is faithful. 
He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, which does not mean he will not allow you to be tempted because he's going to give you, he's going to allow you to pass the test. It's a gift. He's going to allow you to reinforce and prove your identity to him. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, nothing's going to be thrown at you you can't handle. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Isn't that a great scripture? You know, this is something my mom did. My mom, uh, she did lots of smart things. But one of the things she did is she said to me, son, I'm going to give you a code. And the code is so if you ever find yourself somewhere that you know you don't need to be and you're about to get involved in something you know you shouldn't be involved in, you don't have to say in front of your friends or your enemies for that matter, you don't have to say, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to get out of here because I was just a teenager trying to figure out my identity. She said, just call me on the phone and say to me, can we have pancakes tomorrow morning for breakfast? You want to know how many times I did that? You want to know how many times I should have did that? (laughs) A lot. God gives you a way out. Not once are you going to have to take matters into your own hands. Do you understand this? Not once. Now, Jesus as much as said this, but you miss it. So you love the next part, but you don't like it for the right reason. The tempter came to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Use your capacity in a way other than God intends and thereby improving your identity to me, undermine your identity. Choose a fraudulent identity. Use your power to meet your own needs. Jesus answered, it's written. Where's it written, friends? In the Bible. So you know where in the Bible, of course. Who in their right mind would not read the Bible and go say, where did that come from? Well, I guess others too. Jesus said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And let me show you where that scripture comes from. That is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Listen to it. The Lord humbled you, causing you, Hebrew children, to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now think about this. Jesus is in the wilderness recapitulating the 40-year wandering of the Hebrew children, and he calls on a scripture referencing the 40-year wandering of the Hebrew children, and he calls on a scripture from the wilderness referencing their need and how God provided for that need and they could trust God to give them a way out. Just say amen. Amen. It's powerful. Jesus didn't just quote scripture. He said, the word of God tells me I can trust the word of God. The word of my father tells me I can trust that his word will be fulfilled. The word of God tells me that he'll always give me a way out. The word of God tells me I don't need to take matters into my own hand. I can trust my father just like they could trust God to give manna in the wilderness. And Satan walks away. He's coming back. But he walks away and he plots to undermine what Jesus has done, and that'll be next week. Now, I've been using Paul's writing to the Galatians as commentary on this, and this doesn't need a lot of commentary. This is commentary. Just going to only modify it in one way. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul says. Because the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, what is contrary to the flesh. See, they're in conflict with each other. They're in turmoil with each other so that you're not to do just whatever you want. Not to meet your needs in any way that is handy or that feels good to you. If it feels good, do it is a great slogan unless you're a follower of Jesus. If it feels good, do it is a great idea unless there is a God, a creator who designed everything in its purpose and in its way. 
So you're not to do whatever you want. Now, here's what I've got to have you understand is that when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your body per se. This is very important. A lot of Christians of our ilk have decided the body is evil. All sexual desire is evil, for example. It's all bad. It's all wicked. We're constantly fighting with our bodies. But the word for body is soma. And the word for flesh, as Paul uses it, is sarx. There are a couple of instances where he uses sarx positively by modifying it, but all the other times it is negative. And in this case, sarx or flesh refers to the seat of desire, the heart of desire. The heart is deceitful, the Bible says, above all else. The heart of desire. So Paul's not saying your body's evil. He's saying that meeting your needs in any way that feels good to you is a big problem because it causes you to compromise your identity as a faithful son or daughter of the living God. But if you're led by the Spirit, he says, you're not under the law. Your law now is love. The acts of the flesh, are, they're obvious. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and I love this part, and the like. There's so much of it. These are common, as Paul said in Corinthians. They're all over the place. So this is not an exhaustive list. I want you, I warn you rather, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that if you do not have your real ID in Jesus, you do not have your real ID as a son or daughter of the Father, and if on that real ID the cross of Jesus is not in the upper right-hand corner saying this person crucified their flesh themselves with Christ and now they are resurrected with Him and live like that, you do not have hope of entering eternity to be in the eternal presence of God. Paul wants to warn people about that because he wants all of us to be there with him. So he said, I warn you as I did before, those who are like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The problem is not the sins themselves. It's the identity they reveal. Do you see? What they reveal we really are. But the fruit of the Spirit, singular fruit, you get all of this is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Temptation thing, that's a pretty important word, self-control. Against things like this, there certainly is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sarks with its passions and desires, And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And see, that's what Jesus was doing. The Hebrew children, they wandered around in the wilderness trying to figure out who they were. Jesus knew who he was, so he walked with intent, in step with the Spirit. And he did not become conceited, believing he could use his own capacities to have whatever he wanted. And therefore, he did not compromise the identity with which he was marked in baptism. Earlier in this same chapter, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. That jail that imprisons you, the bars on it are your own desires and passions that you are choosing to meet however you want to. You fill in the blank because it's your weakness. Though it is shared by many, it is in some ways particular to you. And you've got to figure out how you are selling out your identity. And you've got to trust me when I tell you, the devil knows where to drive the nail. No fool, he. The devil understands exactly where your insecurities are. And says to you, why don't you prove that you're really beloved of God? Because if God loves you, then he'd want you to have what you desire. So just take it. There it is. See it? 
your eyes drawn to it, your heart might be drawn to it, take it. What is your real ID, friends? I am a beloved, your beloved children of the Heavenly Father if you are in Christ. That is the most valuable quantity that you will ever possess. Nothing else will come close. Nothing you'll ever do, nothing you'll ever want, nothing you'll ever have, nothing will ever come close to your real ID in Christ. And that is the one thing we do not want to compromise. When we reach the gates of heaven, when we rise with the dead to walk to a new heaven and a new earth, we want to know that we are who God says we are. I am who the I am says I am. In New Seeds for Contemplation, one of Thomas Burton's lesser-known but better books, Merton writes, our vocation is not simply to be, but to work out our identity in God. It's a beautiful line. What he's saying is we get preoccupied with our own desires and needs, right? We get preoccupied with our own insecurities. We get preoccupied with our own failure to belong or feel like we belong. We get preoccupied with all these things, but our occupation, our vocation, our calling is to work out our true identity with God. And that true identity is to be a beloved son or daughter of the heavenly father. There is nothing else. Anything else you claim for identity is a fraud. It will break you, not make you. But this, this is everything, and that's why when Satan comes our way and says, if you are a daughter of God, (laughs) if you are a son of God, do this. And we say to the devil, I am who the I am says I am. Is that the best you can do? Because it's not going to get it for the devil, I've got to tell you, okay? I am who the I am says I am. That's who I am, and it can never be taken away from me. Once it is given, it can never be removed from me, but I can choose to give it away. And what Satan wants to do is not to get you to deny Jesus or to claim Satan as Lord. It's none of that. That's too simple. What he wants you to do is to compromise your identity. All he has to do is get you to change your game. Once you're off your serve, you're done. Toast. Until you can reclaim your real ID as a son or daughter, beloved of the one true living God with whom he is well pleased. Now, stay with me for a few weeks because this just gets deeper. So, Father, we're on for this journey through a wilderness, this 40-day wandering where we will find our way to the promise of the cross and the empty tomb. And in this period of time, we who are your children, we who have claimed Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we will search diligently to discover the places within us where there is a desperation, a longing, That is a precondition for a temptation. And when the tempter speaks to us, we will say boldly and clearly, God always fulfills his word, and here is his word. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of the Father. I will remain that and not compromise my identity. I am who the I am says. I am. And Father, if there's anyone listening to me today who has never truly claimed this identity, who's never claimed the cross of your son Jesus and the empty tomb as their own, fully forgiven and fully restored, then I pray today would be the day when that person would say to you and maybe to me, I'm ready to break free. I'm tired of this prison. I'm ready to break out. I'm ready to claim my place as an heir of the Father. In fact, I'm ready to receive what Jesus has claimed for me. I am a daughter of God. I am a son of God. That's who I am because that's who the I am says I am. And we pray 
in the name of Jesus Christ, whose true identity is our real ID. Amen. We hope to see you in Stevenson Hall for our business session. We'll try to keep it brief, and I hope you have a magnificent week. Now, Columbia, we know who we are. We are all new, all in, and all out. So you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.